0: Well, good Monday morning. Welcome to Connect, the California MBA's weekly podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. I'm Dustin Hobbs, Communications Director here at the California MBA. And although it's we're halfway through uh, January, this is our first podcast of the year, so welcome to a new year. Um, as you've noticed already, we've got a little bit of a, a different look and feel for the podcast this year. I'm still going to be doing our one-on-one interviews, but uh, we've, got, we've updated the look just a little bit, and we're actually are going to uh, add some themes for this year. So each month we'll have a different uh, theme that will play into the conversation we have with our guests, and at the end of, the, of each month, uh, we're going to be having a sort of a mini panel with uh, uh, several guests on that topic, and we'll dive into it uh, in a little bit more in depth. So this month, we're going to be talking about uh, origination sales strategies for the uh, the year ahead. Uh, it seems like an appropriate topic here at the beginning of the year. And I'm really excited to get into the conversation with our guests here, and uh, we'll do that in just one second. But before we do, I want to thank our sponsors over at Incelerate. So if you're looking to close more loans in 2021, I uh, definitely suggest you check out accelerate Do uh, experience accelerates award-winning customer, customer engagement platform that features lead management, CRM, call routing, sales enablement, marketing automation, borrower engagement, and data intelligence through innovative use of multi-channel marketing, text, social media, email, direct mail, phone, ringless voicemail, retargeting, and much more. So, Accelerate Bottom Line helps lenders close more loans through better borrower engagement. And to schedule your personal demo, go to accelerate.com. You can find out more there. All right, before we jump into the conversation here, I want to toss it over to Susan Malazzo, our CEO, for this week's weekly update. Susan?
1: Thank you, Dustin, and welcome everyone to 2021. My name is Susan Mouazzo. I'm the CEO of the California MBA, and I'd like to welcome you to the first podcast of the new year. I want to start out our podcast by giving a big thank you to those companies who are President's Council sponsors in 2021. These companies are providing an extraordinary level of support for us, and uh, it's an annual sponsorship that'll last throughout the year. They'll be featured at each of our conferences this year, as well as all of our marketing. The companies are providing an investment into the industry because they realize that by maintaining our strength, we are able to maintain our advocacy program, which of course is the cornerstone of the California MBA. So thank you to all of your companies who were President's Council sponsors for 2021. We greatly look forward to working with you this year. Uh, we have two free webinars to start out 2021 so you can join us later this month uh, first up is our mortgage technology and marketing webinar which will be on january 26 people versus automation creating frictionless transact transformation in 2021 we'll be featured us uh, featuring speakers anthony galliano and casey hughes wade from slk global solutions as well as paul Gelati. COO of Pinnacle Home Loans, uh, a member of our board of directors and chair of this year's Mortgage Innovators Conference. So uh, great speakers for the MTAM webinar this month. So um, that will be an event that you won't want to miss. Just a couple of days later on January 28th, the Mortgage Quality and Compliance Committee will be hosting our first webinar of the year, and we'll be talking about the new QM rule. Our featured speakers will be Joe Liniac partner at Dorsey and & Whitney, and Angela Cheek, VP and Counsel of Product Compliance at ICE Mortgage Technologies. Um, very important content, um, and I know that both the speakers, speakers are anxious to share their expertise on the new QM rule. Remember, these webinars are free to anyone in the industry, so we hope that you can join us for uh, MTAM and MQAC later this month. Back to you, Dustin.
0: All right, thanks, Susan. And now let's get to our conversation. I'm really excited to welcome in Bill Tassar. He's the uh, president of Civic Financial Services and uh, they're a fairly new member with the California NBA just joined this past year. And so I'm excited to find out more about them and Bill's journey through the, uh, the industry. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Dustin, happy to be here. Why don't we, uh, why don't we start at the beginning? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, sort of what maybe what led you to Civic and, that, uh, and the private lending space. Maybe tell us a little bit more about the company as well.
2: Yeah. Uh, So I started out of college uh, 35 years ago as an originator, Uh, Western United States based company um, originated through college. And then for that firm, started a uh, company in the early 90s and built up and have run three large mortgage companies over that uh, time frame. In or around 2017, uh, I sat uh, as an advisory a board member in with this company, Civic, that was owned and operated by Wedgwood. Uh, Wedgwood, incidentally, is the uh, largest fix and flip company in the nation. And they had a private money company. It was a uh, 40 employees doing about 20 million a month. And what struck me is it reminded me of what the conventional space was like in the 80s it was new it was coming off of the savings and loans and resolution trust corporations and that whole thing and and you know it's that conventional space has gone a long way and seen an awful lot of change over 3 decades but i looked at the private money space and said it just to me it felt like it lacked that discipline it lacked platforms and process and funding sources and technology and it just it felt like there was something I could really do with that opportunity. And I kind of felt like I had done most of the stuff I set myself out to do on the conventional side. And so early 2017, I took uh, the role as president and CEO. We had about 40 people, 20 million a month. Uh, And over the last three years, we're a little north of 300 employees and we've been funding over a billion dollars a year. 1819 and and even this pandemic 1920 so yeah it's um it's a institutional private money a company so what that basically means is it's non owner occupied really bridge rehab fix and flip multifamily space and it's it's very very different from the conventional space in so many different ways um but it's yeah it's been it's like starting over and it's been Invigorating and having a lot of fun. Yeah, well, it sounds like you guys have had a lot of success the last couple of years, so congratulations
0: there.
1: Thank um,
0: you. You kind of mentioned the uh, how you guys have done this last year in uh, 2020, but I'm I'm curious, what do you what's your your take on that on the private lending space right now? I mean, considering the you know the pandemic that's still ongoing, lockdown, the economic challenges,
2: everything that uh, all the headwinds there. What's the sort of the state of the market? Yeah. So leading into COVID, what I would tell you is the space was getting a lot of attention from Wall Street players. And you saw more and more of them, not just bidding on the pools of loans or securitizations, but partnering up, right? You've seen a bunch of acquisitions, um, uh, Genesis ac- acquired by Goldman and then Redwood acquired um, Corvest. And so you started seeing bigger players getting into our space. And I think really it's it was a chase for yield. Our space provides real yield opportunities that on the conventional side, you know, it's now it's it's paper thin. Um, an awful lot of volume, paper thin margins, the strong survive and you know, middle, it's, it, it's tough to make a buck. Um, so that was going real strong. COVID hits and, and, and literally Dustin in a two day period. So a loan could be worth a, a 103, same FICO, same leverage, same borrower and on Thursday, once this COVID thing got announced, and it really was kind of like that, like, oh, we have a problem, Uh, the bid went away. So Mm -hmm. instead of 103 or 102 or 101 or 100, we had people on Wall Street saying, we don't have a bid. And so what it did was it really exposed the lack of liquidity and financial stability in a lot of the firms in our space, a lot of them. And so you say, well, what does that mean? What happened? I would tell you about 75% of our space stopped lending completely. And why they stopped lending is they had loans on their warehouse line that they couldn't sell. And so they were getting margin called and some of those people couldn't beat that margin call. And so we we had a very strong balance sheet where we, we have strong financial backing. And so what we did was we tried to find the levels that would at least trade the loans at par. And, and, and so during that period of time, four months, we had never raised rates in three years. We raised rates five times in four months and we weren't raising rates for any other reason to find the level on Wall Street that they would at least trade at par. Hmm. And you can't, you can't run a business at par. No. So we, we did that and we lowered leverages and put guardrails on. And what I would tell you is we picked up some quality individuals who no longer had firms to go to, we, we 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 felt like we had the right level. We invested more capital in the business to make sure that we could ride this out. And then the market shifted a lot quicker than we thought. And Wall Street solved their problems and they cleared their lines and they started working out um, workouts for some of the people that were in jams. Some people went away. Others emerged slowly. And what I would tell you is like now today, like right now in January, it feels like Pre-pandemic levels. You got more people bidding on loans. You're driving that 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 those premium prices or the pass-throughs down. Securitizations are starting to pop up again. And so, to me, it feels a lot like that. As it relates to COVID, I would tell you, like, no one wants to. COVID's bad. People have been sick. People have lost their lives. Economically, it's bad. From a business perspective, the one good thing that happened out of COVID is we prove to ourselves that we can work from home. So we have 85% of our workforce is at home. Hmm. Deployed computers, deployed printers, because of what you and I are doing right now. So go to Zoom, Microsoft Teams. I, I actually think it's changed the business world post COVID. And so we're yeah. planning on like, what does our company look like? We have hundreds of thousands of square feet in commercial space with all of our offices. I don't know that we need all that. And yeah, I'm so you see that, that as a long-term
0: permanent change, then at least with your company. Yeah, you know, we we've seen companies like
2: WeWorks lead us to re-sign up with 75% discount the first couple months, 50% the next, 25. Not no negotiating, just like here's a discount. So you know, like that's a pretty good indicator that there's there's some challenges. And 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 what I would tell you is. And, and probably most surprised by this, not everyone. Most people have been happier. They've reconnected with loved ones. They've reconnected with their children. They they have to make a living so they can manage themselves at home. But it's been it's been an amazing process for me to watch. I've come to the office every single day. Yeah, really. I haven't missed a day other than if I was taking that day off. Every day and this, our corporate office is about 40,000 square feet. So it's big. We fit maybe a couple hundred people here in this side of the wing. There's 11 people. Wow. Not a lot. So yeah, to me, I think the aha moment of this whole thing, once we get behind this is going to be, what do we really look like post COVID? Are we are we okay with people working from home personally? If, if if it creates a happier version of you, Dustin, and we can support you and you're closer with your family and you're still producing the output, why wouldn't we do that? Right. So, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, that's really been, we're spending a lot of time right now strategically trying to figure out if that's part of our business, how do I create your home environment? with the best technology? Do we send you guys, you know, lunch in a box? Are there, there, is there online yoga where we could all stretch at a certain time? Like what can we do to make that an awesome thing for you? And so we're exploring that right now. That's it, well, yeah. And I think it's obviously not just you guys. I think
0: a lot of of our uh, uh, commercial lending friends on the retail and uh, office side are certainly, you know, uh, concerned about that as well. And so you've kind of hinted at it here, but you know, talk to me a little bit about what sets Civic apart when it comes to culture. Um, you know the, as you mentioned earlier on the, the private uh, uh, private lending space isn't you know as traditionally organized and and uh, you know maybe set up uh, as well as the conventional side is, and it's not necessarily a place we think of for a lot of culture focused companies, but you guys definitely seem to have broken that mold. So what's the secret? How do you guys
2: you know how is it how has it helped the business itself? You know, um, I coached uh, I coached football for 14 years and I coached baseball for 12. I had uh, two young um, boys at the time that went uh, through the system, and so I wanted to be closely connected, and I did that. And one of the lessons I learned is that together you can conquer anything. We we played much better teams at times, much bigger teams at times, much faster teams at time that played with a bunch of individuals. It's, it's of course at 10, 11, 12, 13, you, Jimmy wants it to hit the home run, doesn't care about laying down a bunt and getting on first and moving the runners. And, and so I, early on, it was, I was a team first guy. What I would tell you what's happened here is like, I have a belief if you give more, invest more, do more for people than they deserve, you actually do get back more than you deserve and you being civic. So civic, selfishly by investing in Dustin and doing everything for Dustin, friends, family, work, opportunity, career path, even if that meant Dustin shouldn't be here. If you said, hey, I have an opportunity. I'm not the guy that's going to stand in front. I'm going to help you and then keep the doors open if it doesn't work out so you can come back. I mean, it is a a chips all in investment in our people. And we do it from, from snacks to rewards to grand ideas and subjective bonuses and And we do the dry cleaning thing when people were coming to work and and all that stuff. And it really is, look, you got to make money. If you don't make money as a company, then you can't invest back in the people. But what I would tell you is we have 14 people in our culture department, 14 full-time employees whose sole responsibility is making sure that our people are good. Sole responsibility, keep, stop, start. Uh, Once a quarter, all of our employees tell us what we should keep doing what we should stop doing, what we should start doing. We take those into consideration. We have grand idea, pay $1,000 a month for the person that comes up with the best idea for the business, cost savings, culture-related, uh, income opportunities. So we get amazing amount of input there. And then you know, we, we follow the whole scaling up approach. So we pulse every day. First meeting of the day is me and my senior management and then they go and have theirs, they have theirs. So everyone in the company, Everyone in the company, 15-minute pulse meeting every single morning. And so if something is affecting Dustin and their and that manager can't help you, it will work its way up. And if it comes to me, then I'm gonna solve it because problem that same problem day two is actually a real like if it was a my paycheck was wrong. They 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 missed a hundred and forty-seven dollar expense and I sent something to HR and they didn't respond your manager, if that's bugging you, that that, it's bugging you, you're thinking about it. So you're not thinking about your job. We need to solve that problem. It's like, it's that sort of thing. And so what I would tell you is anybody you ask anybody that is with us or no longer with us would tell you that, that unquestionably, this is a company that is invested in them. And um, that's every day. And we have core values and core purpose. Everyone follows that. It's not like a tagline or posters. In we all uh, come from a I come from a four generation military family, and it, it, it was really from the military. But everyone's got a coin. On our coin, it's got our five core values: act with honor, be a great partner, communicate clearly, create smile, simplify, and then our purpose. And so. Look at these are guiding lights. You might go, oh, that's cool. It's kind of riddly. I like it. But when you have when you have that fork in the road throughout the day and you have to make a decision, I will promise you if you follow kind of our core values, you'll figure it out. And if you don't, it's not going to be terminal. It's going to be, you know corrective, and we'll figure it out next time. and I can't tell you how many times I've been out by myself uh, on a weekend and I'll pull it out of my, you know, my my shorts or whatever. If I see one of our our co-workers and they have it like our people carry the coin. So there is a little bit of camaraderie and esprit de corps that goes along with that. Again, that teamwork going back to coaching football and baseball. It's like we're in this together and it, it makes a difference. It, it does. It may sound corny hearing me talk about it, but it's it's very very real
0: no not at all i think i mean i think if I we could just pull this last couple of minutes i think you've got a great ted talk there on leadership so i mean i think everyone listening to this i mean there's some you know clear takeaways with that that's that's really fantastic and as someone who loves team sports myself that's you know you're you're you know preaching to the choir here for sure um so let's uh, uh um switch gears here just for a second our theme this month obviously is on uh, originators origination and, and sales strategy. So from your perspective, what key strategies or tactics are private originators using to boost volume right now?
2: So I, I am a little bit different in my approach here. So coming 30 years from conventional, we were never the cheapest price, right? The quick ends or the bigger, bigger uh, lenders could always shave price and, you, and, and banks, you know, could buy the market at any moment. So I really came from the school of thought of you better bring more value than rate and fee than the next person. It's It, it really does have to be about that like customer for life approach. And the only way I'm going to do that and not have to worry about rate and fee is to bring something other of value where if Dustin looked at it, you go, yeah, I mean, I, I would never consider using anyone but Bill Tesser because of what he means to my overall business. Not what, yeah, I could get a quarter lower, an eighth lower or save $400. That's not what this is relational. And so though I didn't need to, I took the same approach that we've taken here. And what I tell our people is two things and keep it super simple. Focus on building a database that's hunting new business. A lot of ways you can do that. Happy to tell you and nurturing your database. So in the early stages, you do a lot more hunting because you don't have any database. You're in the game early. And and that hunting, it, even old school stuff, like simply getting on the phone, and you can pull trustees of people that have done private money, get that information, use a reverse directory, get the phone and call. I mean, there's so many ways that you can reach out as long as you're not afraid to spend some time on the phone. Right. The, 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 the guys and gals that do it here are, are the ones that do double digit volume every single month. And so my thought is do it. And then once you've done that and you've brought the value, make sure you never lose that customer. Because if you, in our business, a good investor, they're going to do three, four deals a year, not one deal every four years. They're going to do three, four deals a year. So why would you ever, with all that energy and effort to find Dustin, let Dustin go work for someone else? Like nothing should be more important once you got him to keep him, to check on him, to make sure his project's going well. If it's not... Bring some resources, contractors, home design, realtors that will list that maybe at a discount, takeout financing, conventional people. Like it's your job to solve Dustin's problems, and then he's going to continue to come back to you. At least is the way that I see it. And so our newbies, it's get on the phone and 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 have the output. And then once you get them, we have all kinds of automated ways to keep them. That's that's really cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, so I mean, right now we talked about it a,
0: little earlier, a little earlier with the pandemic. So, are there, you know, or what I would say uh, are the advantages um, that private lenders have in providing their borrowers in, you know, I guess you could say
2: uncertain times like this? I think the biggest the biggest differential on the private money side is that uh, borrowers can go into transactions and act like a cash buyer. We close our deals in five to ten days five, we, we've done three days. Three's pushing it a little bit with title and stuff, but five to 10 days, under 10, all the, like 95% of the time. So you can actually go and transact, offer, commit, sign agreements to close inside of 10 days, which you know, being in, in the space, you can't do it on the conventional side. Right. Forget the refi boom. If the refi boom was behind us, you still can't do it. The very, very best lenders that have it all figured out are 21 days. So, yeah. so your cash bar, that's number one. Two, um, the, the qualifying, this is really an asset-based loan. So if, if there's 20% of equity in there you know, and you're not a knucklehead, you can get financing. You don't, W-2s, tax returns, pay stubs, bank statements, explaining a 1992 Sears late, that's not in our space. So that's part of the speed. Um, so leverage is greater documentation is less super fast, like cash. And I think as people think about it, even though the rates are higher and the fees are more, and they are, they are, even though that's in play, you'd be surprised. When I first came over here, I thought, institutional private money, uh, bottom of the barrel borrowers. These are going to be sub 600. They got a story Mm -hmm. and scars and they limp into the closing. You know, I was ready for that. Our average of borrowers like 718 FICO net worth significantly higher. These are these are successful people that don't want to bring the lump of information and deal with the back and forth. They'll pay the rate, they'll pay the fee, they'll get into the transaction, rehab, beautify the home, get out and and make their money on on the exit. And and it's Probably my biggest surprise on this space it's just when it seems like too
0: I mean if they're doing you know multiple loans and uh, transactions a year I mean they want a, a partner that they can count on that they know and it's more than just you know a uh, someone they're going to forget about and you know maybe touch base within a couple of years but if they're doing a couple of loans a year they
2: want someone that they can have an active relationship with like you guys yeah I think about like myself if I were to go to a company like ours I qualify at any bank or any lender, mortgage banker, broker, I can qualify easy, no problem. But gotta bring my all my bank statements and my stock and I gotta get W-2s and pay stubs and credit report and all my story and then I gotta wait for them to ask me back and forth. I would pay uh, institutional private money rates and fees if I knew that they can close inside of 10 days and they they check the value of the pro I would do it. So if you aren't fast and you do nickel and dime people, then why would they pay? So we've been really good at gut checking ourselves. When you start leaning, huh? what well, maybe Dustin, we may ask Dustin, well, hold on back up. We're equity lenders. Leave Dustin alone. Like you have to check yourself because it's easy to fall into conventional thinking as a lender, but this is an equity-based loan. And so you almost have to disqualify yourself as opposed to qualify yourself if the, if the asset is there, if the equity is there. That's yeah. Okay. It. Yeah. That makes sense. So then, I mean, you know, onto that
0: uh, topic there, what is the hottest product right now in, in the space?
2: I think bridge loans, number one. So people want to get in and out. They don't have time to close. They have the conventional financing lined up, but you know, for whatever reason, they got to close this deal quickly. That's probably number one rehab. Number two, um, What's unique is like a lot of these properties that dinged up real estate wouldn't qualify conventionally, even if the borrower does. And even if they had time, the property won't qualify. So, you know, we'll go 80% on that and we'll do hundred percent on the rehab portion. So you could buy a a $500,000 home that needs $150,000 worth of work. And we'll give you 80 of the 500 and the full 150 Hmm. and only charge you the 150 as, as you draw from that line. So I mean, where else are you going to get that? And and we're going to do that without taking you through the rigmarole of normal conventional financing. So I think that, and then third, I'd say multifamily slowly coming back. Um, you're, I think you're going to see a lot of one to three and a half million dollar opportunities in our space for the multifamily side. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Um. So, I mean, we are
0: right in the middle of uh, um you know a historic refi boom right now that just I mean you know certainly kept everyone uh, busy all year last year and seems like you know going forward at least for the foreseeable future here we're going to continue to see it but at some point it's going to end so you know what impact will that have in your space there and, and you know maybe what are the the keys to to success looking forward to transitioning away from that business to more of a, a purchase focused business or that's more on the conventional side but
2: how does it affect you guys? No, I think you're Dustin, I think you hit it bullseye. Like I because I've been in that space so long, I've seen the cycles and and I've spoken at at uh, events and conferences and pods about what will happen on the conventional side, which well then I'll answer what happens on our side. What I believe happens and I believe it's happening right now. You saw the treasury earlier in the in the week it rates went up 50 basis points in a day. And what I what I've told my friends on the conventional side is this. Throughout the refi boom, refi boom was great, unbelievable. Don't leave the purchase business. So, the true giants in the space maintain large purchase percentage. Those, those originators will actually gain market share because it's my truth that the ones that fish in the refi pond only will make a pivot to the purchase side. Those relationships are secure. They're going to bump up against, they'll do some little price thing and some benefit thing. And then those people will either have to reset the way that they're living because the income is going to be significantly lower or they'll get out of the space. We saw it the last two refi booms. People came in, people came out. Then the the financial collapse that came in, they came out. So I do think, I think refis could be down as much as 75%. My personal truth. And if that's, if that's the case, um, then you'll see a lot of originators having to figure things out. What we're hoping is that there'll be more attention because there ha- all of ours has been blocking and tackling one broker or one borrower at a time. Everyone's too busy doing the Smith loan four times in a year. We're hoping that they'll open their eyes to a new vein. And I think correspondently, it could it could end up blowing up that channel mm-hmm. for us. We think that the bigger firms are gonna need to augment the refi business immediately. And we, we definitely fit, um, in line with what that would look like. And so we're having those discussions with the bigger firms right now. And look, I, I I think it's, it's happening as you and I are talking, uh, the the drop in refis. I, I keep in contact with originators at the top 10 companies that I've known for years. And they, they, you know, you know what that looks like, right? First, it's, it's credit report orders, then it's lower locks. Then the lock specials come out because you know fair market value. You got to get those locks in, so they start sending the. When you start seeing specials, people at the top are going, you know, we're going to take a hit next month, and and that's and that's literally how it goes. So I've read this chapter of the book a few times, and this is generally how it plays out.
0: Yes, yeah, it's interesting how it impacts you guys uh, in that space. That, that that's interesting.
2: Rates um, so, right? Rates don't really affect us. It's really finally. The People that have been so focused on refis will oh, lend imagination go. and go, like, you know what? I actually have some borrowers that would fit that kind of channel of financing, so we think we'll get some pickup there. That's interesting. All right, All right. so, uh,
0: like a couple more questions here, a couple more minutes. Um, what, uh, let's you know, switch gears a little bit again here. Uh, what about so younger originators, younger brokers, or correspondents that are entering the business? You know, why should they give me your pitch on why they should consider the private? I mean, you're kind of doing it now, but. What, why should they consider the private lending space instead of just the more typical route, the more conventional route?
2: So, you know, um, I have a deep love for the conventional space. Literally, most of my adult life was spent there. And um, it's a very crowded space, uh, very competitive space. It's uh, the government's your partner in 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 most aspects of it. And margins for the mothership are razor thin. Like, yes, there were firms that made a mint during this refi boom. But in a normalized market going into the refi boom, there were there were eight to ten companies that would blow you away that were that were very very, you know, they were they were cutting back on the coffee cup orders type of thing, like very right. close. And so, if I were new coming in. I would and i was thinking about one of the two if i went conventional i'd make sure i went with a financially sound firm so that would be number one but if i were thinking about the other one we don't we sell six loans conventionally we sold 250 different types of loans so much less to learn early on Mm -hmm. um the ease of qualification is much easier which then goes back to the ramp up of the learning curve learning underwriting guidelines and how to qualify someone and how to talk through sophisticated people like you and I through a transaction when you're fresh out of college. Here it's, you know, get value right, pull a credit report, verify four months of reserves, understand what they ask is and communicate it. I mean, it's I've oversimplified it, but it is kind of like that. So I think the ramp to uh, like a six-figure income, if that, let's say someone out of college that was important, is much faster on the business purpose loan side as opposed to the conventional side. And we do a top gun program once a year where we had, I think the last one, we had 1,800 applicants. We had, out of the applicants, we we interviewed like 140, 150 of them. And we ended up hiring 12, graduating 10. And then like eight are still with us. But what I would tell you is we've done that for, we've had five programs so far. And some of those originators are our very best because they're not clouded with, oh, let me tell you what it was like during the financial crisis. And, you know, all that, or right. I already know it, they just head down and follow instruction. So I think that the path, uh, the barriers to entry are smaller, the path to success is quicker, the amount of information you have to learn is less. Um, and I think, I think that probably makes for an easy transition as a successful originator. To me it seems like it would be easier to go from the business purpose space to the conventional than the conventional to here because okay. we had we had to unlearn stuff. Like everything we learned in conventional, most of that doesn't apply here. Like a lot of the Dodd Frank stuff doesn't apply. Yeah. So, you have to unlearn some of that stuff and there were so many programs to me it feels easier uh, to, to start out in this space. Interesting. Well,
0: that makes sense. That makes sense. So, all right, well final question here. And I mean, I think you're the perfect person to ask this question. Someone who's been, as you mentioned in both the conventional space and now in the, uh, the private institutional space. Um, and that's on advocacy. Um, and especially this last year, I mean, you mentioned earlier, the, uh, uh the margin calls that a lot of the companies had to you know, sort of face down early in, in the spring or late in the spring last year um so how crucial would you say the uh, advocacy efforts of groups like the california mba the mba are right now and, and what would you say to a, maybe a colleague who didn't didn't quite understand what uh what these groups do as far as uh, advocacy
2: efforts here's what i would tell you dustin early early on when i first started i looked at it as an expense on and l didn't really understand the importance of it i would tell you if i were advising anyone new listen the, the seasoned people already know what i'm saying and they're already nodding their heads but you have to have organizations like cmba mba back in the olden days it used to be simba um it's the foundation foundation of credibility in our space and especially in the newer space of private lending right and so um who is shepherding the cause of all of our critical topics year after year after year it's not you know we're blocking and tackling in our own backyard so i would almost make it mandatory like like getting a license you you shouldn't be able to have a license and not be part of a group like this and be able to represent yourself in a certain way in the marketplace it's to me if i left this role and went to to your guys's role. And I was in charge of, of um, signing people we're up. Putting you in, we're putting you in charge of membership though. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know who, who, who said no, put me through to that person. Let me talk to that person. Tell me about your business model. What do you, what keeps you up at night? Wouldn't you want to be part of a group that's in alignment with the way that you're thinking? So for me, it was just the immaturity when I started a business years and years ago in the eighties of, you know, keeping all the expenses out. So like, if I started it today, knowing what I, I, I know you would lead with that expense. That would be, that's not a necessary evil. It's an absolute mandatory inclusion in a success plan that I just couldn't imagine uh, a company not being part of, like really. So they're by themselves, basically. Yeah. Right. So yeah. yeah, I, I think if you want to be top of your game in the industry, you need to be a member. And I think it's a must. And I don't, I don't even think that's optional. Well, you're, you're certainly a team guy, that's for sure. Whether it's uh you know, coaching baseball and football
0: or here at the industry. So, I so appreciate that. And, uh, you know, again, we talked about before we started the conversation here, you know, obviously if you look in both our backgrounds, there's some, you know, just a little bit of a uh, baseball memorabilia there. And uh, once we get back to uh, in-person events, we'll have to sit down and, uh, you know, further the conversation and maybe steer it a bit towards uh some sports here. But Bill, thanks again for the time. It was great having the conversation with you and and, uh, best of luck to you
2: guys in Civic this year. We appreciate all that you do, Dustin, and looking forward to seeing you in person. Absolutely. Appreciate it.
0: Well, and if you liked the conversation, if you enjoyed this uh, back and forth with Bill and I, then uh, make sure and subscribe to us here on our YouTube channel. You can also find us on SoundCloud, uh, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And we'll be back again next week for another episode of Connect. We'll see you then.